Let's uh, bow our heads and begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for giving us the book of Revelation, tying all of the scriptures together, showing us the culmination of the, of the great plan that you're working out here on earth. We thank you not only that you have given us the book of Revelation, but you have given us the tools and the means to understand it. So we don't have to remain in doubt and remain clouded by mystery and uncertainty, that we can know what you are doing on this earth. And that we can know that everything that we see around us, no matter how chaotic and uh, discouraging it may appear, is a working toward that eventual goal, that eventual eternal life that you are giving to us. And the enormous plan that you have for mankind. Thank you for these things, and we hope that you we ask that you would help us to understand more aspects, many of the many facets of this book of Revelation. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, our soon coming King, Jesus Christ. Amen. So tonight we're going to be looking at Revelation part three of Jesus Christ, our triumphant King. One of the things that you have learned here at Gospel of Grace is that when it comes to hermeneutics, correctly understanding, correctly interpreting a passage of scripture, context is vitally important. When we want to know the meaning of a particular passage of scripture, we look at the scriptural context. What do the verses around this passage of scripture say? What does the scripture say elsewhere about this topic? We look at the historical context. What was happening at the time that this scripture was written? What led up to the writing of the scripture? We look at the religious context. What was happening in Judaism at this time? What was happening in the pagan religions at this time? We look at the linguistic context. What can we learn about this passage by looking at the Hebrew or Greek words that are used in the passage? When we look at the social and cultural context, we can't just examine the passage in terms of what it would mean in our society. We have to consider what it meant in the ancient society in which it was written. So we need to consider all of these things. This is especially true when we are dealing with an obscure passage, a passage that can easily be, easily be taken in a controversial direction. That is certainly true of the verses that I want to look at now in the book of Revelation. They are certainly such verses, verses that can be and have been misunderstood. The first verse is found in the letter to the church at Smyrna. Revelation 2.9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander 
of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The second verse is similar. It's found in the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Revelation 3.9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. These two verses have been greatly misunderstood down through the centuries. They have been interpreted in a very anti-Semitic way. They have been used as a means to justify hatred of the Jewish people. But when I show you the historical context in which these verses were written, you will discover that that is not what they say at all. I'm sorry for the extensive history lesson here, but it really is necessary to, to fully understand what is going on in these verses. The Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation during the reign of the Emperor Domitian, the Roman Emperor Domitian. He reigned from AD 81 to 96. Most scholars state the, the composition of the book to the later years of Domitian's reign. Domitian began a sustained systematic persecution of Christians. There had been persecutions of Christians within the Roman Empire before, but they were local. Domitian instituted intense empire-wide persecution. The church historian Eusebius in the fourth century chronicles the persecution of Domitian. Domitian had already demonstrated great cruelty toward many. He unjustly put to death large numbers of aristocratic and notable men at Rome. Without just cause, he exiled and confiscated the property of a great many other illustrious men. Finally, he became a successor to Nero in his hatred and enmity toward God. The preterists like to focus on Nero because they think he was the Antichrist. But Domitian, the persecution of Domitian surpassed that of Nero. Because as I said, his, his persecution, Domitian's persecution was empire-wide. What inspired Domitian to attack the believers? It all started with the Jewish tax. What is the Jewish tax? Let me tell you. Near the end of his reign, Domitian's administration suffered financial problems. He had spent generously on rebuilding damaged sections of Rome. Unlike his conservative father, Vespasian, he also spent generously on games, shows, and spectacles. The army caused the biggest drag on his budget. The paranoid emperor knew that others before him had been unseated when unhappy legions turned against their emperor. Domitian did his best to keep his legions happy. He increased their pay beyond what their empire could afford. He considered reducing the size of the army to compensate, but his empire was too large and its enemies too numerous to manage without the presence of a robust army. 
a smaller, more efficient military might balance the budget, but it would keep the borders, but it would not keep the borders secure or put down uprisings. Finally, Domitian resorted to what Nero and Caligula had done before him, robbing his own citizens. The property of the living and the dead was seat everywhere on any charge brought, up, brought by an accuser. This is from the, the Roman historian Suetonius. It was enough to allege any action or word derogatory to the majesty of the prince. The states of those in no way connected with him were confiscated. In other words, whenever a wealthy Roman citizen was accused of an offense against the emperor's honor, Domitian prosecuted the offense and seized the man's assets. Domitian needed still more revenue, so he raised taxes. He also vigorously pursued tax evaders. Suetonius says, besides other taxes, the tax on the Jews was levied with utmost rigor. In those days, the Romans required every Jew to pay an, an annual poll tax of two drachmas per head. The tax applied to every Jewish man, woman, and child in the empire. Domitian's father, Vespasian, first introduced the Fiscus Judaicus, or Jewish tax, on the pretense of recouping imperial expenses from the Jewish war. So there had been a Jewish war in the, in the late 60s, early 70s AD, and Vespasian imposed this tax on the Jews to recoup the expenses of that war. The proceeds went toward the rebuilding of the temple of Zeus, Jupiter Capitoline, the main temple in Rome. Long after the Flavians completed the new temple, however, they continued to collect the Jewish tax. It had become an important part of their revenue, of their annual revenue. So just like today, once a, a government program begins, it, ne it never goes away, it seems. The Flavians, incidentally, are a, a, a simply a, a dynasty within the Roman Empire, a, a dynasty of emperors. So first there was Vespasian, uh, he was an emperor, and then his son Titus became emperor, and then after him, his other son Domitian became emperor. So that's who the Flavians are. Roman law required every Jew to pay the tax, but the law did not precisely define who was a Jew. That ambiguity sometimes made God-fearing Gentile believers liable for the tax as well. The Roman authorities did not distinguish between the halakhic Jews, Jews who were following the, every, every uh, jot and tittle of the Jewish law, and people who merely practiced aspects of Judaism. In the eyes of the tax authorities, keeping the Sabbath or Jewish dietary laws or other Jewish customs might have been sufficient to make a person in his household liable for the tax. Naturally, this resulted in Gentile God-bearers attempting to diminish or conceal their association with Judaism. Some Jews also tried to conceal their Jewish identity to avoid the tax. Domitian's revenue-hungry administration pursued the tax evaders. Anyone suspected of being Jewish or accused of engaging in Jewish superstition needed to appear before a local tribunal to prove that he was not Jewish. So as is increasingly becoming the case in our society, people are 
considered to be guilty until they prove themselves innocent rather than the other way around. Suetonius writes, those who concealed their Jewish origin and did not pay the tribute levied upon their people were prosecuted. I recall being present in my youth when a 90 year old man was examined by the procurator in front of a crowded court to see whether or not he was circumcised. If the court convicted someone of being Jewish and failing to pay the required tax, the state might imprison him until he could pay the outstanding taxes for his household, along with any associated fines and penalties. Or it might execute him. If he had possessions and property, the state confiscated these. The revenue garnered from the tax evaders encouraged Domitian to push the, the, the program further. He called upon the general public to inform the government about known Jews in their midst. Many informers came forward. This is how Domitian discovered an entire secret society of tax evaders right under his nose in Rome. God-fearing Gentile believers. They claimed that they were not Jews, Jewish, yet they lived as if they were. They called themselves Christians. Suetonius writes about the arrest and prosecution of Gentiles who did not publicly acknowledge the Jewish faith, but lived as Jews. The God-fearing Gentile believers did not publicly acknowledge their faith because they feared arrest and prosecution. They did not pay the Fiscus Judaicus because they were not Jews. Domitian issued legislation making anyone who merely lived as Jews liable for the tax. Apparently he called on the population to report friends, neighbors, and relatives who worshiped the Jewish God. Slaves reported their owners, neighbors reported neighbors. Jesus had predicted, brother will betray, betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. Commission considered them liable for the Fiscus Judaicus. He arrested them and seized their property. He banished some to exile, others he put to death. The legislation against Jewish tax evaders sparked a witch hunt in Rome. Many of the persecutions were baseless. Slaves who resented their owners reported their masters to be living as Jews. Anyone who had a motivation to see someone else ruined took advantage of the opportunity and informed on his enemy. The investigations revealed that many of the charges had no basis. At the same time, the courts found that a surprising number of the accusations had merit. The number of God-fearing Gentiles shocked the mission. The Christians abounded in every city, and some even lived among the upper-class aristocrats of Rome. As he learned more about them, he dreaded and feared them. Domitian already disliked the Jews. He had always wondered if the Jews might attempt another revolt or try to avenge themselves against his family. Domitian's father led the legion against the Jewish revolt and his brother Titus sacked Jerusalem and burned the temple. Domitian's superstitious mind and constant paranoia made him fear the Jewish God whose temple his family had destroyed. The discovery of thousands of secret Jews right under his nose fed those fears. The secret Jews did seem to be organizing politically against him. They seemed to have no loyalty to Rome. They followed a different king, a Jewish king, 
and they identify themselves as citizens of the Jewish king's kingdom. And they claim that their king would soon topple Rome and conquer the entire world. If Domitian had investigated the imperial records from the days of Nero, he would have found that the Christians were already infamous as followers of a particularly reprehensible form of the Jewish superstition. He may also have discovered that, according to Nero, they were responsible for the great fire of Rome in 66 CE. Domitian quickly discovered that Christians were atheists. According to Roman definition, anyone who did not worship the gods, plural, committed this crime of atheism. Domitian found that the Gentile Christians had abandoned their ancestral gods in favor of exclusive attachment to the Jewish God. They did not worship idols. They did not worship Caesar. They did not bow before his image or make any offering to him, nor did they address him as our master and our God, which is how Domitian preferred to be addressed. They denied the gods of Rome, their customary dues. They blasphemed against the gods, calling them dead, lifeless idols inhabited solely by evil demons. They tried to persuade others as well to abandon the gods. The atheism of the Christians sorely troubled the deeply religious emperor. The attempt to ferret out Jewish tax evaders led to something Domitian had not anticipated. His summons for information about secret Jews resulted in Roman citizens lodging thousands of accusations, not against secret Jews, but against Gentiles who had drifted into Jewish ways. That is the God-fearing Gentile believers of the late first century. The discovery of so many Roman citizen subjects who had forsaken the gods and adopted what the Romans called atheism, what we call monotheism, appalled the superstitious emperor. Although imperial law granted Jews the religious freedom to forgo adoration of the gods on the basis of their venerable religion, so they were grandfathered in, so to speak, because Judaism was an ancient religion that existed for centuries. Uh, they weren't required to, uh, to worship the, the pagan Roman gods. But that did not apply. They did not grant those same freedoms to non-Jews. Roman law guaranteed Jews the right to practice monotheism, but that Jewish right did not extend to Gentiles who chose to adopt the Jewish God. Domitian considered the monotheist Gentiles an, an insult to the gods. Worst of all, he discovered believers among his own family members who were close to the throne and in line as heirs to the empire. They had adopted Jewish ways. He had his own cousin put to death and exile, exile his niece to a remote island. At first, Domitian considered punishing the Jewish community for proselytizing to the Roman people. He drew up plans for a general persecution. As he prepared to enact punitive measures against Jews throughout the empire, frightened Jewish leaders stepped forward and petitioned the emperor to spare the Jewish community. They argued that he should not hold all Jewish people responsible for proselytizing the Gentiles. Instead, only one troublesome sect of Jews called Christians was to blame. Domitian canceled his plans for pogroms against the Jewish world 
and gave new orders calling on informers to identify the Christians in their midst. A person denounced as a Christian lost his property to the state, a punishment that enriched the emperor's coffers. The emperor seized entire estates and sent their owners to their deaths or into exile in remote islands such as Patmos. The Roman historian Tacitus Dio states, many who had drifted into Jewish ways were put to death, and the rest were at least deprived of their property. Domitian wanted the Gentile God-fearers separated out from the Jews. He introduced legal enactments to distinguish between Jews and Gentile Christians. He affirmed Judaism's status as a legal religion under Roman law, but for Jews only. He excluded the God-fearing Gentiles from those same protections. Moreover, he declared Christianity illegal for both Jews and Gentiles. Since the days of Nero, the Romans had put believers to death on charges of conspiracy, atheism, and majesty crimes, dishonoring the emperor. But none of the emperors had issued any official legislation specifically singling out the believers. The new law brought the death sentence to anyone admitting to be a Christian. In the eyes of Roman law, the Christian sect of Judaism officially became an illegal superstition, no longer part of Judaism. Heemstra, a modern historian, Heemstra writes, in this way, the Romans had succeeded in making a clear distinction between Judaism as an accepted religion, religio licita, and Christianity as an illegal religion or rather superstition, superstitio illicita, between legal atheists and illegal atheists. In the book of Acts, there is a very significant verse, Acts chapter 15, verse 21. The apostles are here giving instructions to Gentile Christians. At that time, most Christians could not afford to own their own personal copies of the scripture. So in order to hear the scriptures read, on a regular basis, they went to the local synagogue to hear the reading of scriptures. As it is said in local Acts, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So the Christians went to hear, the Gentile Christians went to the synagogues to hear the scriptures read because they didn't have their own copies, their own personal copies of the scriptures. At that early time in the first century, most believers still participated in the larger Jewish communities of diaspora cities as adjunct members of the Jewish religion. Many Gentile believers were more or less well integrated into the local Jewish population. Both Jewish and Gentile believers worshiped and socialized within the context of the synagogues. Within that context, the God-fearing Gentile believers stayed off the radar of the Roman authorities who had lumped them together with the rest of the Jewish population. The Jewish community recognized the God-fearing Gentiles as non-Jews, but to the world outside the synagogue, they looked Jewish enough. They worshiped the Jewish God and assembled with the Jewish people. Without the assistance of insiders within the community, 
the authorities could not distinguish between legitimate Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who only appeared to be Jewish. Domitian's new policy, condemning Christians and exonerating Jewish people who did not adhere to Jesus, impacted the relationship between the believers and the larger Jewish community throughout the empire. The impact of the new policy explains what happened in Smyrna and Philadelphia. After the decree reached the provinces, members of the local Jewish communities denounced the believers to the authorities. In the interest of self-preservation, they were motivated to inform on the believers by providing the local Roman magistrates and tax authorities lists of names, identifying people who worshiped within their community but were not Jewish. In some cases, such lists probably recorded only the names of Gentile believers. In other cases, the list may have included the names of Jewish believers in the community as well. But the Gentile Christians faced the greatest jeopardy. We can imagine the leaders of the Jewish communities in Smyrna and Philadelphia presenting such a list to the authorities, saying, these people are not Jews. They are members of the illegal Christian superstition. Jesus comforted the persecuted believers in those cities by reversing the words of their returns. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. That description alludes to the accusation that the Jews of Smyrna must have made against the believers. They claim these people are not Jews, but they themselves were not acting like good Jews when they denounced the believers. Jewish ethical standards regard informing on a fellow Jew and putting a brother's life in danger as a sin. Although the informers were Jewish, they did not act in a manner appropriate for Jewish people. The term, those who say they are Jews and are not, functioned as an ironic reproach against the informers whose chief accusation had been that the believers were not Jewish and were therefore guilty of the crime of atheism and of being Christian. This historical situation also explains why Jesus used the bitter epithet synagogue of Satan. The Hebrew word Satan means accuser. If the Jewish leaders in Smyrna and Philadelphia denounced the believers as Christians before the Roman authorities, they became agents of the accuser of the brethren, as Satan is called later on in the book of Revelation. They became agents of the, of the accuser of the brethren because they became accusers themselves. This does not mean that they were Satan worshipers, that the devil secretly controlled their synagogue or that they employed satanic imagery or rituals. That's not the point at all. Instead, the term synagogue of Satan referred to the informer's role as the accusers of the brethren. The statement cannot be taken as a blanket defamation of Jewish synagogues, or even a defamation of everyone in the synagogues of Smyrna and Philadelphia. It most likely referred specifically to those individuals who drew up a list of known believers and delivered it to the authorities. Most likely, the accusers held prominent positions as community leaders, perhaps synagogue leaders, 
after all, the synagogue leaders were in the best position to compile such a list of names. And they would be the ones who the Roman authorities pressured to compose such a list. In short, when the term synagogue of Satan and the phrase those who say they are Jews and are not Jews are read within their historical context, they actually make reasonable sense without any anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic or anti-synagogue implications. The passages make no hint that God is through working with ethnic Israel, nor is there any indication of replacement theology or anti-Jewish sentiment in these passages. On the contrary, the reproach of Jesus uses the term Jews with a positive connotation, holding the term up as a high ethical standard. The synagogues in question were probably the very synagogues which the believers in Smyrna and Philadelphia had been attending to hear the scriptures read until shortly before John wrote the revelation. Jesus called them synagogues of Satan because the leadership in those communities assumed the role of accuser against the brethren. Those accusers pointed out that the God-fearing Gentile believers among them were not Jewish and therefore were not eligible for protection under Roman law as Jews. Instead, they were guilty of practicing the illegal superstition of the Christians. That is an atheism that failed to honor the gods of Rome. Jesus' harsh words indicate that the accusers who betrayed the believers were not acting in a manner consistent with Jew Jewish ethics, and he turned their accusation back on them. So this, these verses in Revelation, in the, the letters to to Smyrna and Philadelphia are not telling us about some secret fiendish evil satanic plot that all Jews are involved in to take over the world and, and uh, suppress Christians and so on. That is not what the verses are saying. So this is the historical context that we are giving regarding these verses. So some other controversies that come up in the book of Revelation that I wanted to explain. Uh, one is about the seven spirits are one, found in, in Revelation 1, 4. How can the Holy Spirit be seven spirits if he is one person? According to Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is one person, the third person of the triune Godhead. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as he, singular, but John referred in, in the book of Revelation to the seven spirits which are before God's throne, which many commentators see as a reference to the Holy Spirit. But how can the Holy Spirit be seven spirits? The book of Revelation contains a good bit of symbolism, and this is only one example. There is similar symbolism in other portions of the book. For instance, most agree that Revelation 12.3 speaks about Satan, but he is called a fiery red dragon, seven heads and 10 horns. Here, the seven heads and 10 horns are attributed to one individual, Satan. Also speaking of the beast from the sea, Revelation 13.1 says that he has seven heads and 10 horns. The number seven symbolizes completeness as there are seven days in a complete week. Other symbols are used of the Holy Spirit in scripture. For instance, 
he is spoken of as a dove in Mark 1 10. He's likened to the wind in John 3 8 and water in John 4 14. He's also portrayed as tongues of fire, tongues as of fire in Acts 2 3. Notice that it says tongues, plural. And Ephesians 1.13 says, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, signifying God's ownership of us and the security of our salvation. Many Bible students believe the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit may derive from the reference in Isaiah 11.2, where he's called the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, of might, of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord seven different characteristics of one and the same spirit. Is the world square? Revelation 7.1. Does the Bible teach that the world is square? John speaks here of the four corners of the earth, which implies that the earth is square. But modern science teaches that it is round. Isn't this a mistake in the Bible? The Bible does not teach that the world is square. This is a figure of speech meaning from every section of the globe, or as Jeremiah put it, from the four quarters of heaven. It is a succinct way of referring to the four directions, north, south, east, and west. In this sense, it is akin to the phrase, the four winds of heaven. In the Bible, the only references to the shape of the earth speak of it as round. Isaiah spoke of God, who sits above the circle of the earth. Job, referring to the world as hanging in space, asserted that God stretches the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. There is certainly nothing unscientific about these statements. Uh, in this regard, um, I'm amazed at how many people, how many otherwise rational, reasonable people have bought into this flat earth idea. I just, I'm amazed by that that in this day and age that there are more and more people who are buying into this flat earth idea that is certainly not taught in the Bible. Is heaven a place of quiet or is it a place of singing? Revelation 14, 13. Is heaven a place of rest and quiet or of incessant praise and singing? According to this verse in Revelation uh, 14, heaven is a place in which the saints rest from their labors. However, earlier in the book of Revelation, heaven is described as a place of constant praise and singing. Which is it? Heaven is both. There is no contradiction between resting from labor and singing praises to God. It is exactly what people do today on their day of rest and worship. Heaven is an extension of what we do now. Labor implies what is wearisome and painful. Resting from this and praising God forever are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they go hand in hand. Demons performing miracles. Revelation 16, 14. Can demons perform miracles? Sometimes the Bible uses the same words, such as sign, wonder, powers, to describe the power of demons and to describe the miracles of God. However, a miracle is a supernatural act of God, and only God can perform such acts. The devil is a created being and has only limited power. Although Satan has great spiritual powers, 
there is a gigantic difference between the power of the devil and the power of God. First, God is infinite in power. He's omnipotent. The devil and his demons are, are, is only infinite and limited. Only God can create life. The devil cannot. Only God can raise the dead. The devil cannot raise the dead, though he gave breath in, in the book of Revelation to the idolatrous image of the Antichrist. The devil has great power to deceive people, to oppress those who yield to him, and even to possess them. He is a master magician and a super scientist. And with his vast knowledge of God, man, and the universe, he is able to perform lying wonders. But only God can perform true miracles. The devil can do the supernatural, the super, excuse me, the devil can do the supernormal, but not the supernatural. Only God can control the natural laws he has established. Though on one occasion he granted Satan the power to bring a whirlwind on Job's family. Further, God gives the devil any power the devil has, and God limits and carefully monitors him, as we learn in the book of Job. Christ defeated the devil and triumphed over him and all his host, thus giving power to his people to be victorious over demonic forces. Thus John informed believers in 1 John, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now let's look at some of the contributions of the book of Revelation. Revelation makes significant contributions to a number of areas of New Testament theology. It conveys a sense of the sovereignty of God that no other New Testament book approaches. The vision of God on his throne and the worship he receives helps us to see beyond our earthly circumstances to the Lord of earth and heaven and reminds us that only God is ultimately worthy of our devotion and praise. As Richard Bachman puts it, the effect of John's visions, one might say, is to expand his reader's world, both spatially into heaven and temp temporally into the eschatological future. Is, to put it another way, to open their world to divine transcendence. Revelation offers a high Christology in that Jesus is constantly portrayed in terms appropriate only to God. When we were back at the um, high school in, in Edina, I remember that I, I gave a, a Wednesday night uh, class on uh, showing that, that the scriptures do indeed teach that Jesus is God. And one of the things about Jesus in scripture is that Time and again, Jesus is treated in the way that only God would be, treat, be treated. It is significantly uh, significant in this regard that the opening vision of the book is not of God the Father, but of Jesus Christ, and that both God the Father and Jesus Christ are called the Alpha and the Omega. Early in the book of Revelation, the term Alpha and Omega does refer to God the Father. But later in the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, it unmistakably refers to God the Son. In these ways and in many others, John makes clear that the sovereign God is accomplishing his purposes on earth through the Son, very God himself. 
you will find that throughout the Bible, whenever angels appeared to human beings, and those human beings wanted to fall down and worship the angels, the angels were very quick to correct them and to explain to them that they were also servants of God. But in the book of Revelation and elsewhere, Jesus readily accepts worship. He would not do that if he were not God. But while the Revelation focuses on Christ's glory, power, and role in judgment, the cross is never out of sight. The powerful rider on the white horse that we read about in Revelation chapter 19, we are constantly reminded is none other than the lamb that was slain. Without dwelling on the crucifixion of Christ, John makes it clear that all that Christ does to wrap up human history is rooted in his sacrificial death. John has restructured the typical Jewish apocalyptic perspective with his Christological focus. That's why we can't lump the book of Revelation in with the apocalyptic writings that arose in between the writing of the Old Testament and the New Testament in that intertestamental period. Since Revelation focuses on the end of history, it is in the area of eschatology that it makes its most important contribution. Nowhere are we given a more detailed description of the events of the end. And while many interpreters have been guilty of finding far more specific than John visions that is than his symbolism allows and of unwisely insisting that their own circumstances fit those specifics, we should not go to the other extreme and ignore those details that John does make relatively clear. But it is short-sighted to think of eschatology simply in the sense of what will happen in the end times. For the end in biblical thought shapes and informs the past and the present. Knowing how history ends helps us understand how we are to fit into it now. Particularly is this so because the New Testament makes clear that even now we are in the last days. Thus, Revelation reminds us of the reality and severity of evil and of the demonic forces that are active in history. In this regard, I'd like to point out that we have been in the last days since the first coming of Jesus. But the very last of the last days are referred to in a different way in inscription. They were referred to as the time of the end or the end times. So uh, keep that in mind as you read the scripture that those two expressions, the last days or the, the time of the end, the end times, um, even though they might seem to be synonymous, they aren't really in scriptural practice. Beasley Murray's comment is insightful. He's a writer about the way of commentary. It is ironical that the century which has witnessed the death of the devil and the Antichrist in theology, so they think, has experienced the most appalling manifestations of demonic statecraft, the most terrible desolation of war, and the most widespread oppression of the Christian faith in all history. At the same time, the degree to which Revelation exhorts believers should not be neglected. As the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three reveal, not all the Christians to whom John writes were faithful. There is a conflict in Revelation 
not only between the church and the world, but also within the church. John's visions also place in fair relief the reality of God's judgment. A day will come when his wrath will be poured out, when sins will have to be accounted for, when the fate of every individual will depend on whether his name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Equally clear, of course, is the reward that God has in store for those who keep the word of endurance and resolutely stand against the devil and his earthly minions, even at the cost of life itself. John's visions are a source of comfort for suffering and persecuted believers in all ages. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the, the great truths you were revealed to us in the book of Revelation. It is not a concealing, it is a revelation. It helps us to understand the plan that you are working out on this earth and how that plan will culminate in victory for those who put their trust in you. That no matter how dire and distressing the world around us may seem at times, you are carrying out your plan. It has been said that the world is not falling apart, it is coming together. Your plan is coming together. Everything is falling into place. Thank you for this book of revelation that you have given us. And we ask that you would help us to continue to mind the, the great riches that you have for us in this book. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.